when a person is in pain and when pain is severe, it takes over their life. It becomes hard to move beyond the pain and conduct your daily activities, much less think. Hello. Thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter, and the person you just heard was Dr. Barbara Murphy of Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Dr. Murphy is a medical oncologist who specializes in head and neck cancer, and she's a renowned expert in pain and symptom management control. I've known Dr. Murphy since 2011 through her service as an American Cancer Society volunteer. She was a member of one of the peer review committees that reviews and ranks research grant applications for us. And now she's a member of our Council for Extramural Grants, which recommends which grant applications should be funded. Dr. Murphy is professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, where she's also director of pain and symptom management oncology services. My colleague, Dr. Susanna Greer, spoke with her. Susanna, what did you think about the interview? Hey, Joe. I really enjoyed my conversation with Barbara Murphy. I learned a lot, um, quite frankly, about head and neck cancer during this podcast. Um, Barbara does a really lovely job of just kind of laying out the basics of head and neck cancer. Um, and there's a lot there. I mean, it's, it's a an interesting group of cancers. And so she talks to us about um, kind of the risks that we know um, for head and neck cancers, how we can decrease our risk. Um, then she does a really lovely job of talking about kind of the treatment strategies for head and neck cancer and how they've changed um, in recent years. So I think that you will you really enjoy hearing this conversation that I had with Barbara because one of her areas of expertise and focus is on the challenges um, facing head and neck cancer patients and into their survivorship. These are things that I should be more aware of and it was just really motivating for me to hear Barbara describe some of these challenges and ways that um, the research community can really be more impactful um, to these cancer patients. So let's listen to Barbara and our conversation. I, I think that she'll be um, just as motivated and moved as I was. Hi, Barbara. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Doing wonderfully. Thank you so much for sharing some time and expertise with us. How's your day gone so far? Oh, good. I just got some data off of a study that we've been doing and talking about that with some of my colleagues. So that's been fun and exciting. Awesome. So it sounds like we might get some hot off the presses information today. Ah, uh, maybe. <laughs> All right. Well, let's level set for our listeners about your area of expertise, which is fascinating. Um, you work primarily in head and neck cancer. Can you talk to us a little bit about the basics of these cancers, um, maybe their causes? Let's start with that. Absolutely. So head and neck cancer affects about 60,000 people in the United States on an annual basis. And when I started in my career, oh, almost 30 years ago, I hate to say it, um, it was um, almost half that. So the numbers have been increasing. There are five major sites that are included in head and neck, and those would be the oral cavity, which is the mouth, the pharynx, which is the tube that connects the nose and the mouth with the swallowing tube, the esophagus, and the breathing tube, which is the larynx. It also includes tumors of the larynx, which is, which is our, oftentimes we call it the voice box. 
uh, the sinuses, and then the salivary glands. Now, in addition, head and neck docs also see patients who have skin cancer in the head and neck region because skin cancers um, are, are found very commonly in the head and neck region because of sun exposure. And it also includes thyroid cancer. Now, when we talk about the causes, historically, 30 years ago, almost all of the patients we saw would have had a history of, of excessive smoking. I mean, really, really significant history of smoking use. And that may ha also have been accompanied by um, alcohol because they interact synergistically to increase the risk for head and neck cancer. Now, however, human papillomavirus, which many people may be familiar with because it's been associated with cervical cancer, has now been associated with head and neck cancer. And the most rapidly rising group of head and neck cancers are pharynx cancers, or oral pharynx specifically, so cancers of the throat that are associated with human papillomavirus. The good thing about head and neck cancers is that the vast majority of patients present with localized disease. That means the tumor has not spread to distant sites like lung, liver, or bone. And so depending on how big the tumor is and how far it's spread to lymph nodes, we actually have a reasonably good chance of curing patients. It's over 50% overall, and for tumors that are early, uh, the, the cure rate is even higher. All right. That's a lot to package there. So despite the variety of cancers that are going to be localized and called head and neck cancers, it seems that there might be a piece of good news there, that there could be some modifiable risk factors, so things that we could do um, to decrease our risk for these cancers. Could you share with us a little bit about that? Absolutely, um, and I think this is a really important point. So there are two really critical preventive strategies. Um, the most recent, of course, is the utilization of vaccination for human papillomavirus. This really began with an effort to decrease cervical cancer in women. Um, and over time, it became recognized that the human papillomavirus, or HPV, was also associated with oral pharyngeal cancers. And over time, it became recognized that we actually have to extend the vaccination from young women to young men. And in the United States, it is recommended that all young men and women, starting at age nine, which is quite young, um, uh, be vaccinated against the human papillomavirus. So that's preventive strategy number one, and that's really important. And unfortunately, we are not doing a good job of this within the United States, and I think we all have to uh, focus our efforts on making sure that um, every child um, is adequately vaccinated and has a chance to, to prevent um, this disease from occurring. The second, of course, is, is smoking. We need to make sure that our young people do not start smoking because preventing a child from starting to smoke or a young adult from starting to smoke is absolutely a better way to go than trying to help somebody quit down the pike. Um, smoking cessation is tough, and, um, and it's important, um, but it's, it's harder than working on prevention. So our second preventive strategy is to keep people from, stop, uh, from starting smoking 
and to help them quit at in whatever way we can support them. Well, that's great. So there, there are some really positive news there around prevention and I mean, we all want to do the best we can by our kids. So what a positive message of these are two really valuable preventive measures and practices that you can do as a parent. The first around ensuring adherence to vaccination protocols for HPV, where we're getting benefits that we, you're right, in the beginning never thought that we would see. And then the second to really hone in on preventing kids from ever starting to smoke. So we'll, we'll all do the best we can. Um, but there, as you said, their head and neck cancers are a real challenge uh, for our population. So I'd love for you to hear, I'd love for you just to talk to us about treatment, right? There's been a, I think a big shift in the way that we treat these cancers. So I'd like for you to talk maybe a little, a little bit historically about treatment strategies, and then maybe a second piece would be, what, what are you excited about? Okay. Well, um, treatment for head and neck cancer was historically surgery and radiation therapy. So the surgeries go back to you know, the mid-1800s, and surgery really started advancing when uh, we, had, uh, we could put patients to sleep so they weren't awake during the surgery. Um, over the years, surgical techniques have changed. Uh, we now use uh, reconstructive techniques that allow the removal of tumor with markedly less adverse impact on cosmesis, that is how patients look and function. You know, how the, the head and neck tumors are in this very confined area, and, and it's an area where there are critical structures that are critical for function, and if the tumors affect those tissues um, adversely, or we have to go in and remove those tissues, well, we're going to be impacting on those functions, and those functions include swallowing and taste and breathing. Um, so our reconstructive techniques that are now used by many of our surgeons um, allow for much, much, much better functional outcomes. You know, and the same thing is applicable for radiation. Over the past 100 years, our radiation techniques have changed dramatically. My father was a radiation oncologist decades ago, and in his era, patients were treated with radiation that used what, we call, what was called opposing beams. So the radiation field was created by two beams, one delivered in one direction and one delivered on, on the opposite side in the other direction. And Unfortunately, that didn't allow for tissue to be spared. Hmm. Now we have techniques such as intensity modulated radiation where the radiation beam comes from multiple angles and we're able to contour the radiation so that we hit the tumor and, and hit it as hard as needed, but we can spare the tissue, the surrounding tissues um, uh, to some degree and, and minimize symptoms. And then finally, the, the, the third arm of, of uh, this little stool, or the third leg of the stool, is drug therapy, systemic therapy. And again, in, initially, treatment was confined to surgery and radiation, and it's only been over the last, oh, 40 to 50 years that chemotherapy has joined the armamentarium. Um, it was... Uh, 
it has been historically used for patients who have recurrent disease or metastatic disease. Metastatic disease means it's spread to lungs, liver, bone. Um, chemo was confined to, to those settings, but over time we began to realize that chemo could add to radiation um, and improve radiation outcomes. So now chemotherapy is a part of what we call combined modality therapy. So there will be patients who are treated with uh, chemo and radiation or surgery and chemo and radiation. And the purpose of using combined therapy is to improve local control and survival. Now, from the standpoint of chemotherapy, for many years we had just a small handful of drugs. And, and when we talk about chemo, we're, we're talking about drugs that specifically target the tumor itself in order to kill the cancer cells. Now we have other types of treatment. We have targeted agents. Um, the one that's used in head and neck cancer is cetuximab. Um, and we have immune modulators. And those are therapies that rev up your immune system to help you fight the cancer cells. And this is probably the area of greatest intrigue right now when it comes to patients who have metastatic or recurrent disease. And it's actually been shown to improve survival in, in patients who have metastatic to, um, or recurrent disease. So that's been very exciting. Because of the positive results of, of those studies, we are now taking these intriguing agents and we're incorporating them into our multimodality treatment paradigms um, so that at the time of diagnosis, we're trying to find out whether there's a role for these drugs. And, and so I think investigators are, are very excited about the potential of improving um, the cure rates for our patients. I should also say that one area of advance that is oftentimes not mentioned is um, we are there's a, a good deal of research on prevention and supportive care. Now, this is research that addresses the question of how do we prevent um, side effects and how do we optimize symptom control and functional outcomes for our patients both during and after therapy. And this evolving concept of prehab and rehab is becoming increasingly important because we want patients um, who survive their cancers to be functional members of society who have really good quality of life. And that means we need to know how to prevent long-term effects of, of cancer and cancer therapy from impacting our patients. So I'd like to dive a little more into that very last segment that you brought up, which touched on survivors. So I, I know one area of your expertise is on those specific challenges um, that head and neck cancer patients um, and survivors will face. Could you maybe, I, I don't know that all of us would be really familiar with some of those challenges, but could you talk a little bit about that and how they're specific to, to this set of cancer patients? My passion is uh, trying to minimize uh, symptom burden, maximize function, and um, maximize quality of life in cancer patients. Because I see as one of the 
preeminent challenges that patients face. And it's the area um, that I have chosen for my personal research. Um, Cancer and its treatment cause local and systemic symptoms that can affect function. So what are those local symptoms? Well, they include pain, difficulty swallowing, or pain on swallowing, which can result in weight loss and dehydration, the buildup of secretions, which can cause gagging and limit patients' ability to take in nutrients, dry mouth, which can make it uh, uncomfortable to speak or eat, taste and smell changes, which take away the pleasure of of eating, uh, soft tissue swelling and scar formation in the uh, soft tissues, which can result in decreased range of motion in the jaw, the neck, and the shoulders. I mean, that can impair simple things, such as being able to drive, because you can't look over your shoulder. Uh, Patients have dental issues. The the teeth can become um, carried and may need to be um, removed, so loss of, of dentition. You add on top of that the systemic issues, such as severe fatigue, um, mood disorders such as anxiety and depression, what we call neurobehavioral issues such as agitation or increased irritability, weakness from muscle mass loss, cognitive impairment such as loss of memory or difficulty concentrating, and temperature dysregulation. These symptoms are common among head and neck cancer patients. They, they tend to uh, worsen during therapy because therapy causes many of these problems. And then they improve over time after treatment is completed. And for many patients, you know, when they're a year out from therapy, they have mild residual symptoms or function loss. But for some patients, they have very profound long-term symptoms and long-term loss of function. And when they do, this can seriously impact their quality of life and their ability to live day to day. And so uh, this is what I personally think is one of the biggest challenges for our patients is dealing with all of these symptoms. And um, it is what, what drives me to do my own research, trying to address these issues. I do have a question about, you know, no matter how the how supported you are during your cancer diagnosis and treatment and survival, that pain is probably the great equalizer. Um, I, I'd really like to understand why is pain management a priority for you? Well, there, there are the very um, clinical reasons, which include well, when patients hurt when they swallow, they don't eat, they lose weight, when they lose weight, they don't tolerate treatment, and they become weakened. There are those simple, very straightforward reasons, but there are much deeper reasons. When a person is in pain and when pain is severe, it takes over their life. It becomes hard to move beyond the pain and conduct your daily activities, much less think. Uncontrolled pain has many adverse effects, Um, including increased anxiety and depression. It induces a stress response, which has adverse biological impact. It decreases activity, which has has a host of downstream adverse effects, and it isolates people. So 
good pain control is paramount. Now, interestingly, we live at a time where we recognize that one of the cardinal tools that we have in our toolbox, which are opioids, can be misused. And when misused, they can have adverse effects in and of themselves. So trying to strike the right balance between good pain control and the risks of opioid pain relievers is a major challenge for patients and their caregivers. And I I think this is a challenge we really must face head on. We must accept that challenge and do the best we can for our patients. In response to that, we are seeing more researchers who are doing work to see how we might prevent or control pain better without as many um, adverse side effects or risks for the patients. So bearing in mind all of those challenges that a patient is facing, you're obviously you're going to want to have um, the best treatment possible for that person. So what do you see right now in the field as the real obstacles to treating head and neck cancer patients? I mean, what, what's, what's the thing that kind of keeps you up at night and really bothers you? So I would say the thing that bothers me the most, what I perceive to be the biggest obstacle in, in helping patients through their cancer treatment and recovery um, is trying to help patients who are economically, socially, or emotionally disadvantaged. We have patients who struggle to afford transportation to their doctor's appointments. They struggle to pay for medications. They struggle to get nutritional supplements or even to get to their doctor visits. We have patients who are alone and socially isolated. Um, Head neck treatment is very difficult and patients often are unable to meet their own care needs. So family and friends step up and they fill in that care gap. For patients who are alone, there is no one to fill the gap. And so they suffer unduly from the side effects and emotional distress associated with treatment because they are alone. Hmm. Almost all patients experience emotional distress with their cancer diagnosis, but those patients who have mental health problems often face a particularly tough challenge getting through treatment. And unfortunately, mental health services are, are scant and underfunded in our society. So finding them help can just be um, a tremendously difficult. Um, addressing these disparities is, is probably the biggest obstacle for myself and for my team. So you set up a pretty big challenge for not only the ACS, but other funders of cancer research. Um, so thanks for that. You may have trouble answering this, but I'd really like to know, what are you most excited about? Like, what is the thing that, despite these obstacles and challenges, that you're like, you know, this is this is exciting, and this gets me up every day, and, and this wants me to just kind of keep at it? I, I think that'd be a really interesting thing to hear from you. Well, the, the, there are several things that keep me at it. I, I would say that... Um, from the standpoint of, of taking care of patients, um, I, I love the interpersonal interaction. I love going in and connecting with my patients and their caregivers and being an integral part of 
their lives during the period when when they are struggling with cancer and helping them meet that struggle um, to the best of their ability. That is what drives me more than anything else. I also have phenomenal people that I work with, <laughs> and and they care. And um, having people around me that are great human beings, and I mean that seriously, um, that 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 lifts me up because it's a hard job. And and having people around you who lift you up, your nurses, your nurse practitioners, your colleagues, um, is phenomenal. And and then the ability to educate young people and try and um, instill in them the love of patient care, um, the the um, wonderful experience of being part of people's lives um, uh, in such a meaningful way uh, is incredibly important. And then finally, there's the research and, and being involved in cutting-edge edge research and knowing that what you are doing is incrementally helping move the needle forward and um and and that is just a gift to be able to do that well we are certainly grateful for you and your team and for all you do um all right i have one final question um Many of our listeners are either cancer patients or they love somebody who has either been diagnosed or was diagnosed with cancer. And so I'd, I'd like to know if there is a particular message that you would like to share with this uh, population in particular. The American Cancer Society is a fabulous organization with a very broad mission. And... We want to help patients directly through programs that provide housing, um, transportation, or any of a number of other services that they desperately need. We also want to help educate, and that's educate patients and caregivers and healthcare providers. And we want to support cutting-edge research so that we can find a cure and, and help patients live their lives better. Everyone can contribute in some way to support that mission and make a difference, whether it is through providing a ride to a patient who needs to get to a doctor's office, participating in a walkathon that provides research funds, or by participating in a cl clinical trial which will advance our understanding of cancer treatment or the issues that surround cancer um, patients. We can all find a way to give a little, and if everybody gives a little, we can make forward progress. Well, thank you, Barbara. I couldn't have said it better myself, but I will say you're in that category of someone who gives an awful lot, and we are so grateful for all you do. Um, both for the ACS and for your patients and their families. So I'm not going to take any more of your time, but thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it.